Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now podcast. I'm Raghu Marcus. Uh, this year is the uh, 40th anniversary of Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, that uh, Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche started. And at that uh, particular summer that it opened, uh, Ramdas. Uh, was part of the faculty and did uh, a series of talks uh, around the Bhagavad Gita. At least he used the Bhagavad Gita as a rudder for uh, all of the different uh, topics that uh, he went through at the time. Uh, These are considered, actually, uh, and I think Ramdas himself would say that some of the most complete and deepest uh, lectures and talks that he gave at that time in his life, which was uh, really just after uh, coming back from India uh, a couple of years earlier and only a year and change after uh, Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji left his body. And uh, by the way, in fact, these talks uh, have been um, recently, well, a few years ago, released as a CD set on uh, Sounds True called Love, Surrender, and Devotion. I may have that a little cockeyed, but uh, you'll go up to, go to ramdas.org and go into the store and you'll love service and devotion. That's it. So what happened here is they uh, actually just got in touch with Ramdas recently in Naropa and because they're having a 40th anniversary celebration and they asked him to just make some uh, comments and reflections on his time back then and so he did this uh, um, interview and it is going to be available it's just done and it's going to be available um, I mean they're showing it at their uh, convocation, celebration, but we're going to put it up on ramdas.org, so look for it. It's an amazing uh, reflection by Ramdas, and it just made me take a look back and find some of those talks, and uh, I thought I'd share a little bit with you. They're, you know, I think it's, it's like a 14 CD set, so they're, you know, it's quite a bit of material, and, um, what I chose, which interested me, was something called Social Aspects of Sadhana, or Sadhana being uh, spiritual work. And um, so in this particular thing, uh, he starts off quoting the Gita, and uh, he talks about uh, our preoccupation with individual differences and how how we come up uh, from early age, uh, and this is kind of an efficient uh, way of dealing with the world, separating ourselves out, of course, a very neurotic way. Um, and, and, you know, and then as we go along, you know, he suggests we call that being sophisticated, and isn't that true? So, you know, we c- his talk here, I mean, it's really uh, great because of his experience in psychology, and he uses that, uh, as he does on many of these talks. Uh, but, you know, how we come through childhood with some sense of uh, inferiority, inferiority, inadequacy, incompetence, 
just a feeling, uh, kind of like uh, original sin feeling. And so, uh, you know, we have this um, this negative core ego response to stuff. And it goes along the lines of, well, if I had something better, if I, you know, if uh, I was smarter, or if I had a more compassionate father, um, we're, we're all preoccupied by our particular brand of negative identification. Uh, and, and that's how we walk around the world, seeing the world, uh, based on that, you know, like if you have a big nose, he said, yeah, I don't know why you got into the nose thing, but if you have a big nose, uh, all you walk around seeing is noses. And um, now in the course of work on ourself, in the course of sadhana, uh, our perceptions evolve. They keep changing. And uh, we see how clearly we use these individual differences to operate in the world. We see uh, people uh, in relationship to our own desire systems. Um, you know, this is all such relatable stuff. I mean, we the examples that he gives, you know, anybody, I mean, he covers it, uh, I think 90% of the people uh, who are at this talk, and 90% of the people who are listening to this particular podcast and will hear this talk can identify it uh, with. Uh, you know, walk, just walk on the street, and you're a man, and uh, you see uh, just the opposite sex in, in a way that's completely objective, and um, completely based on our desire, the man's desire system, what's makeable and what's not makeable. And anybody's not makeable, you don't even notice them. Uh, or you're, you're in business and, you're, um, and uh, it's all about power. So it's all about seeing people in opposition. Um, it, it can be color. You're hung up about color. So, you know, race you know, falls into it. So as we develop, though, and as we become more conscious, you see, you witness this stuff in yourself, and, and then you start to see your personality, and you see the other personality, the person opposite you, and you see, with just a little bit of a flip, you see that packaging, but you see that it's just a veil, and who we are behind all of that is who we really are. Um, you know, you, I'm just another being like you. So as you evolve, this starts to uh, become a little bit more foreground. And, and as the witness, which is why the witness, uh, and, you know, we talked about this before. Ramdas has talked about it in innumerable lectures. One of the great methods to be able to use is being awareness. I mean, how much of that is in the news today? Mindfulness, awareness. Uh, so, the, but the witness is a very, very crucial factor in being able to transcend, um, you know, this stuff that we come up with uh, uh, around, uh, certainly around individual differences. I mean, I just, I see this uh, in myself after all of these years and being with Maharaji in India and spending all of this time doing uh, spiritual work, sadhana, and and still walking around and and having that constant polarization stuff going on where you know whatever's in me uh, re regarding these individual differences and fortunately that witness is is the one thing that 
um, that has evolved over this time so that I'm able to uh, check this uh, reactivity, this instant reactivity, and just check it and just allow it to be with, you know, it's not a matter of like cutting yourself off at every corner. So uh, one great um, uh, example he brought up about, you know, because people, there's nothing you can do uh, in regards to people and their reactivity based on this individual differences. I mean, he talks about his father and, you know, and he talks about how there was nothing to do about changing his father. His father was, uh, you know, a successful businessman and, and considered whatever Ramdas, when he came back from India, you know, what did his father call him Ramdam and his, uh, his brother called him Ramdas. So he... <laughs> Uh, you know, he had to deal with this, f uh, this, uh, the karmic predicament uh, of being in this family where there was no um, understanding whatsoever of what he, of the inner work that Ramdas was trying to do. Um, and uh, he quoted the Gita, and it says, Let not the wise uh, disturb the mind of the unwise. So, you know, you can't force anything. You can't. You can't say, well, behind it all, you're not really uh, my father. You're a soul behind it. You can't do any of those things. You just have to do the dance together. So this just reminded me of um, my own father and the, uh, God, the anger that I had uh, as a youth uh, growing up with him. And, um, and really, you know, gee, if it was only different, if he wasn't such a tyrant or whatever it was if he wasn't so angry and uh, so on and it 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 never served anything for me and fortunately and i i have uh, of course talked about this in in podcasts previously but uh you know and this is just pure grace and and i you know and people say to me geez i wish that could happen to my father well um I don't know why it happened to me. I don't know how, why, but Maharaji brought my father to India, brought my father, meaning my father had enough of an interest and I had enough in me, my brother and I, to actually send him letters from India going, come on over, this is great, you know? And uh, for many years, I used to th say uh, in groups and, you know, talking to people, asking me, you know, uh, how... All of this happened for my family, which, you know, all of my family ended up uh, being with uh, Maharaji in India and meeting him and becoming devotees. So it's a very strange situation. But however it happened, he came over and he obviously had the karma to do that. And he um, basically, uh, I'm not going to go through the whole story again. You can hear it on earlier Here and Now podcasts, the very first few Um but he basically showed me behind all of that crap that I reacted with and, and behind all the differences I had with my father, he showed me the true being behind all of that. I got to see his soul when we were together with Maharaji. And that was a tremendous uh, lesson for me. And, uh, of course, it completely changed my life. Um I love this uh, particular quote. 
this uh, statement he made. You become the environment in which the optimum growth is available to all human beings you come in contact with because you are no longer laying trips on everyone. You're not judging or discriminating individual differences. That is... Um, that's geez, that's just a basic uh, foundation for how to um, transcend and uh, your your own personal stuff, so you can be of some use to to people. I mean, that's just a, a tremendous thing. Um, he also in this uh, talk talks about Trungpa. I think he talks about that whole lecture, and that's again in another podcast around Trungpa and Ramdas. And it was around, uh, he talks about the uh, being in, in uh, Tale of the Tiger in Vermont. And Trumpa said, what about sorcerers? And Ramdas said, sorcerers? I don't know from sorcerers. All I know is to go to the one. And then he, what about responsibility? Um, and Ramdas interpreted this. He, he said, well, basically what I believe he was saying is if I deny sorcerers, if I deny the planes of evil and good, you know, by, uh, in other words, by saying, I'm just going to the one, but if I deny, uh, then I'm caught in denial for fear of all this stuff. So I'm no less hung up than if I had been totally preoccupied with individual differences and failed to appreciate that behind it all lies the one. Um, so, you know, important teachings that... Uh, really came from Trungpa. Um, I got one more little quote here that I picked out that, of course, you'll hear him uh, r repeat in the uh, talk. And it's, uh, my growth, Ramdas is referring to himself, my growth is that I am growing into being able to assume the responsibility in the realm of individual differences and in the same moment, keeping aware of the fact that the one lies behind it all. That's where that blend is. As Trungpa said, it's a very fine line. And it's a fine line between accepting responsibility for individual differences and recognizing the one behind it all. Uh, you know, the, the good example, and it's stuff I've experienced myself uh, you know, along the way, you meet somebody and they're they're happy that somehow they got introduced to uh, Maharaji or some word helped them out, and you know, and they're thanking you and you're denying it. But in reality, it's twofold. It's yes, you're welcome, and at the same time, he's he as he says in this, I have nothing to do with this. I am not the doer of this. But at the same time, there is something being done. And so there's a, you know, that's the paradox. Um, well, I think we should just get into it. I want to also, though, again, thank everybody for the support of uh, this podcast, Ramdas.org, Love, Serve, Remember Foundation. Uh, I want to remind you that we have the uh, updated reissue of Grist for the Mill, coming out on February 12th. Ramdas is going to uh, actually give uh, do a webcast around that on the day before. I think it's on the 11th. Check ramdas.org to get all of the information. Sign up for it, and you'll get a link to the webcast. And um, 
so and many other things coming along. Uh, please do continue your support. We appreciate it, and uh, we will see you next time. So here's Ramdas here and now from the Naropa lectures. Now uh, we're going to be talking today about the social aspects of sadhana. And I'm just going to uh, read to you three or four shlokas from the Gita. He has risen on the heights of his soul, and in peace he beholds relatives, companions, and friends, those impartial or indifferent or who hate him. He sees them all with the same inner peace, who everywhere is free from all ties who neither rejoices nor sorrows if fortune is good or is ill. His is a serene wisdom. With the same evenness of love, they behold a Brahmin who is learned and holy, or a cow, or an elephant, or a dog, or even a man who eats a dog. With the same evenness of love, the man whose love is the same for his enemies or his friends, whose soul is the same in honor or disgrace, who is balanced in flame and praise, whose home is not in this world, and who has love, this man is dear to me. Most of us have grown up with a preoccupation with individual differences because it's been very efficient, but it's also been very neurotic, so that we get very discriminating about individual differences, and we call that being sophisticated. And with our own individual differences, we get totally preoccupied. We come through childhood, most of us, there are exceptions in this room, but few of them. We come through childhood with some sense of inferiority, inadequacy, impotence, incompetence, and that's kind of emotional, non-conceptual. It's just a feeling that comes from early child rearing. And we don't have to go into the dynamics of how that develops, but it just is a common thing. It almost is so pervasive that it looks almost like the feelings that come out of a sense of original sin you want to do it from a religious point of view. But then what we do is we start to identify our individual differences with these feelings of inadequacy or badness or wrongness or feelings we've got to do good in order to be okay. Not that we start out by being okay, but that we're really kind of rotten, but if we do good things, we will be okay. And what we're doing is working against a negative core ego concept. And usually what we do is we find some individual difference in ourself that we can connect with this thing and thus blame it. I used to be overwhelmed when I was a psychotherapist by the fact that each person had her or his thing. And each person said, if it wasn't for this, it would be okay. If I didn't have a nose that was shaped this way, if my breasts were bigger or smaller, if I was having better orgasms, if I had come from a richer family, if I were a different color, if my parents hadn't broken up when I was young, if I hadn't fallen and gotten this scar when I was little, 
if I didn't have such big genitals, if I didn't have such small genitals, if my hair was a different color, if I lived in a neighborhood where I had more kids to play with, if I had had a more compassionate father, everybody's got their thing. Okay? I may not have hit yours exactly, but I hit a good 40% of us right just now. And we get so emotionally preoccupied with the thing that's wrong with us that it starts to color all of the ways in which we see the world around us. So that if you are preoccupied with your nose, you then notice noses. And you notice everybody, and you notice all the successful people, particularly, and what nice noses they have. Okay? And so on. In the course of sadhana, of spiritual journey, of awakening, of deepening of meditation, our social perceptions keep changing. And many of us, I would say almost most of us, are in the peculiar predicament that we have built a whole ego structure about who we are and how we function based on these tremendously emotionally laden habits about individual differences. But now we are experiencing realms of the universe and perceptions of ourselves and others that are totally inconsistent with these habits of thought about who we are. And the problem is we can't give up yet because they were so overlearned, those original habits. The image that I have, which I may have mentioned to you, is the one of using yourself as your perceptual field as a microscope. It's like tuning from channel 7 to channel 6 on television, channel 5, channel 4. Because if you look at another person first, the way you are traditionally looking at them, you look at them in terms of, first of all, your own desire systems. So, as I've said before, if you're horny, you see who's makeable, who's a competitor for who's makeable, or who's irrelevant. That's your way of dividing the universe. If you're an achiever or a power-oriented person or you're localized in your third chakra, you look at who's beatable or who's going to beat you out or who you have more power than, and you see everybody in domains of power and realms of power and control. If you're a uh, physical gymnast, you look at people in terms of their body development. If you were a scientist of body development, you might be a uh, Sheldon somatotypist. And you would look at people in terms of whether they are endomorphs, mesomorphs, or ectomorphs. And you'd say there's a 377 or a 422, depending on whether the shoulders were big and the hips narrow, or the hips tall and thin, or short and fat, or whatever. If your preoccupation is color, you are aware of color. If your preoccupation is sex, sexual male or female, you are aware of that dimension always in looking at another person. Is it a man or a woman I'm looking at? If you have a sexual preoccupation that is deviant from the culture, cultural norms supposedly, you will be very aware of that dimension in everybody else. Now, if you flip the microscope one little flip, and you look a little deeper into another person, what you begin to see is personality. And then you see everybody as, that's a cheerful person. That person is very pleasant. That person seems depressed. And those of us that are preoccupied on the lower astral planes where our personalities exist, see only other people as personality. That person was nice to me. That's a nice, a nice woman, nice woman. She's sort of motherly. 
That's the psychological variable. And we look in psychological dimensions at other people. Okay, if you flip it once more into another astral plane, you will see astrological things, as I mentioned before. And then it, there are only 12 permutations in the world. And you see everybody is Leo or Aries and Sagittarius. And, and, that, and when you look at another person, that's what you see. You say, I'm seeing a Leo. person says, I'm not a Leo. My name is Fred. You say, well, that's what you think you are, but in fact you are a Leo. Because I see a Leo when I look. Right? And that's the reality of that plane. If you go one more flip, what you see when you look at another person is another person and they're looking back at you. Okay. You look into their eyes and you see somebody else. Are you in there? I'm here. Far out. And you look at your packaging. And you see the packaging. The packaging involves the astral, all the individual differences. There's still somebody separate from you in there, but the individual differences are more like the veils or the packaging of the product. You can say, you in there? I'm in here. Here we are. We're two beings. Two beings. Now, you take a relationship, say, to your, your mother or your father or your child, who you've got this long history of treating them, that's mother, that's father, that's, that's my son, see, that's my daughter, see, that's Janie, see, that's Mary Jane, little Mary Jane, hello, little Mary Jane, see. And then you flip the microscope with Mary Jane and suddenly there's another being inside Mary Jane. Who isn't Mary Jane at all? It's not not Mary Jane. It's not like it's, it's Sarah Lou. It's not, it's not anybody. It's just another being saying, I'm in here too. I'm just like you. Now what happens is for efficiency so that we can sleepwalk through life, it is usually most efficient to get completely into individual differences and treat everybody just like they were yesterday. So if you were Mary Jane yesterday, you'll probably be Mary Jane today. And if I've treated you as somebody who's a slob, I might as well continue to treat you as a slob because it's most likely if you were a slob yesterday, you'll be a slob today. That's known as efficiency of social relationships. Because if every time I meet another person, instead of being preoccupied with individual differences, I go through them and I see another being who's just like me. Well, it's a whole new ball game every time we meet. Like, who are you this time? Oh, I'm still Mary Jane. Okay. We'll play that one out today. Now, it gets very, very uh, far out because, for example, in my relation with my father, my father is busy thinking he is my father, right? He knows who he is. He's a Republican. He's a man in his middle 70s. He's somebody who loves his family. He's a good man, right? He owns this and that, etc. He likes the ball games. He's, he knows what is, who he is. The problem is that who that is is dying sooner or later. He's already beyond the actuarial age. And not only that, but if he is busy being who he is, and I'm then into the symbiotic role, in relation, the complementary role in relation to that, so I'm busy being his son. But the thing is, I'm 43, and it's funny about who, what a son is at 43. You know? The limits of our relationship are very two-dimensional. They're very flat. But on the other hand, from where I'm sitting, he's just another being. And it just happens that in this lifetime, we took incarnations in which this particular round, he was incarnated. His karma was that I was his son. Heavy karma. My karma was that he was my father, right? 
right? We are each other's karmic predicament, if you will, right? But behind it all, his, you here, I'm here, far out. See? Now, if I say to him, are you here, I'm here, he doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, you're talking that nut talk again. <laughs> and so my job isn't to come on to him at all. And the Gita makes that very clear in um, the third chapter. Let not the wise disturb the mind of the unwise in their work. Let him working with devotion show them the joy of good work. And those who are under the delusion of the forces of nature bind themselves to the work of these forces. Let not the man who sees this disturb the one who sees it not. My job isn't to say to him, look, you're not my father, really, really, really. Because he's got a birth certificate and the whole thing, see, from that reality, right? But the point is that my perception of him is, is another being who is in an incarnation in which he is totally identified with the thoughts that are connected with that incarnation. And he is so deeply identified with them that it is all totally real from how he's looking at it. So we will sit down together and we will talk father and son talk. But all the time I'm doing my mantra and I'm sitting in the place inside myself, which is merely another plane. It's no better or worse than the one he's on. It's just a different one in which we are two beings who are doing this dance together. And what my mind is doing is creating a space which if he chooses, he is free to give up the limiting conditions of the role that he has been thinking he is. And what will happen to us sometimes is very far out. We will dock father and son talk, and then we'll keep sitting with one another, and then we'll run out of father and son talk, and we'll still be together. And because I feel so peaceful in that, while most people, if they are caught in their roles, get freaked when the role material runs out, when you've run out of script line, but I'll sit with it, and pretty soon we will just be sitting together, just as if we were meditating in the Naropa Center. And we can't have any words about it, because the minute we come into concepts, we immediately go back into models. But we have left words behind, and we're just together. Right? It turns out, I mean, if you want to go further mystically and do another flip, you get so you're looking at yourself when you look at somebody else. And it's all yourself dancing with yourself, making believe you're separate. But that's too far out for us, most of us. The point is that no matter what your relationship is with who, the same rules apply. It doesn't matter whether it's your parent or your child or your enemy or your friend or your therapy patient or your therapist. You treat them all the same way. You treat them with compassion. You treat them with an appreciation of the fact that we are beings who are in incarnations. You quiet yourself, you center yourself, and then it's all possible. And in every relationship, it's all possible. That is, you become the environment in which the optimum growth is available to all the human beings who you come in contact with. Because you're not laying trips on everybody around you all the time. Because you're not sitting around judging, you should be this way. If you were a good father, you'd be, okay? my child is going to be. Okay? I'm hoping that my, for my therapy patients that they will, I expected more from a therapist than can you hear all those places? Okay. I expect my husband to... See, the predicament is that everybody is doing just what they can do. Maharaji kept saying to me, Ramdas, don't you see it's all perfect? 
Everybody's being just who, everybody is a perfect, like when you go out in the woods and you see all the trees, you don't say, well, that tree isn't like that tree. I wish it were, you know, if that tree didn't bend like that, it would be a good tree. Somehow with trees, you can allow it. You can allow that each tree is just perfect the way it is. But when you get to people, if everybody isn't just like you think they ought to be, all hell breaks loose. You sit around judging and judging and judging and judging and having opinions. And there is a whole other way of looking at these gunas, these strands of the universe, interacting and seeing how in each individual manifestation, these strands have merged in such a way to lead to another perfect statement of the unstatable. So that you look at somebody who comes up and who's hung up and tight and angry and insecure and anxious and frightened, and you see the perfection of it far out. And you give each incarnation space to manifest as it needs to manifest. You know, five years ago, I was busy trying to change my father. And now I have grown enough so I can leave him alone. I can just love him as he is. Now, the predicament we have about human relationships is recognizing that certain relationships have been laid on us by God karmically for this entire incarnation. You don't trade in your father. You don't trade in your child. You may try. Whether or not you trade in your husband or wife is an interesting issue in this culture at this moment. In every religion, when you married, you took on the same kind of karmic commitment that you did with a father or a mother or a child. It was till death do us part. We've converted that because when we got totally profane, we started to see it as merely a comfortable social arrangement. And when it didn't work, you changed it. And since that is the cultural format in which most of the marriages have taken place that exist in this room, at this point, you live within the culture you're dealing with. You didn't enter into the marriages consciously with an understanding till death do us part because you weren't conscious enough to to make a vow like that. It's like making the bodhisattva vow. You can't enter into it until you know what you're doing. As you get more conscious, the nature of the contracts you enter into change considerably, and you enter in much more consciously to which contracts, how, and for how long. But at the moment, there are certain contractual relationships you're involved in, which are givens you're not going to get out of in this lifetime, and there are others that when you get finished with them, you can walk away and form new ones. And you can make the differentiation between those kinds of karmic commitments. But if you try to walk away from one prematurely, if you can look back with an astral eye, you will see these long threads going to these beings. Like somebody who splits from home and, screw you, I'm leaving. Maybe the work was done, but methinks it wasn't. There's a subtle flow of emotions that suggests that it wasn't quite all done. I'm leaving you and I'm taking the children. I finished my work with you. Doesn't sound that way to me. You may go away for a while, but that's okay. Later on, you'll be cooler and you'll understand. You can't go through the door as long as you leave unfulfilled karmic stuff behind you. Now, sometimes you've walked away from somebody and then they die. You say, oh, I've blown it. Not necessarily. When you get totally centered, you can run through the relationship with them and bring it up to date consciously. Life and death isn't what it's about, as we'll talk about on Tuesday. Historically, we have all been very deeply involved in a romantic image of ourselves 
And that romanticizing is part of what would be called personality level. It's a low astral, and the, the whole astral planes, all of the, in fact, all of the planes are, are romantic. So that you may finish with the physical plane identity and you say, well, I know that I'm not Joe anymore, see, but who I am is the Messiah. See, see. But don't tell anybody just yet, because I'm not ready to manifest. What you find is that behind the physical plane, there are all these other planes in which you have also identities, and they all have more energy connected with them than this one, so when you get into one, it seems more real than this one did, and you get sucked in. And a lot of us, through various ways, have moved into other planes and gotten very much enamored of new identities and are still as much caught in individual differences as we were before. And the game always is to just keep letting go and letting go. And Maharaji's statement, sub-ek, 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 has been my saving thing. Sub-ek, there's only one. Now you and I can sit around and, like angels on a head of a pin debate, discuss whether the one and the zero are the same thing, and whether the one is an illusion. But for our point of view, from where we start, pardon me, from the poverty position, uh, from where my work is reassuringly helped a lot by the one. And I remember a dialogue I had with Trungpa uh, in front of some television cameras in Vermont last year, when Trungpa was teaching a seminar on Don Juan, and he said to me, Ramdas, what do you do about sorcerers? And I said, what sorcerers? I don't see any sorcerers. And he says, don't cop out, what do you do about sorcerers? I said, Trungpa, I don't notice all that stuff. I just notice God. There's all one. It's none of my business. I'm just aiming for the one. Now, he and I have been having a continuing dialogue, which is a very interesting one, about responsibility. And if I can say it clearly, if I deny the sorcerers and deny this physical plane with evil and good, deny the planes of evil and good and individual differences, I am caught in denial for fear of all of this stuff, and I am no less hung up than if I had been totally preoccupied with individual differences and failed to appreciate that behind it all lies the one. And what uh, my growth is, is that I am growing into being able to assume the responsibility in the realm of individual differences at the same moment, keeping fully aware of the fact that one lies behind it all. And that's where that blend, that is, Trungpa said to me one day, it's a very fine line, a very fine line between accepting the responsibility for individual differences. Like I say to people, and they get very aggravated with me, I say, they say, oh, thank you, you're wonderful, and you've done so much in my life. I said, I don't do anything. I'm just a, a pawn in the game. And they say, oh, come on, stop kidding me. Now, from where I'm sitting, that's the most real thing I can say. At another level, it is true that I am doing something or other. And if I deny one level and cling to another, I'm still caught. So when people say, thank you, I say, you're welcome. And when they say, you didn't do it, I say, you're right. Okay? okay? And you've got to live with all that stuff all at once. All right. Now, you begin to notice as you start to begin to be a connoisseur of the law, of the universe, of the divine law, that nothing seems to be happening by chance anymore that who you meet in the supermarket, who you meet in the streets, isn't random. 
Who you end up going to bed with isn't random, no matter even if you've gotten to the philosophy where you think it is. All of it is lawfully working out each individual's karma. And then you say, my God, what a computer system must be behind this. See? I mean, you read in the Hasid literature that not a leaf turns, but that God does not know. You think, far out. A leaf turning? You know, like you sit and the wind blows and the leaves roll by and you think somebody planned all that? Far out. That's total paranoia. Okay? <laughs> Well, that's what law is. It's total paranoia. I don't mean it. A, right, okay. <laughs> and as I said before, that when you start to get angry at people, like when at this point, it's pretty good now. When somebody really infuriates me, I get infuriated. I roar, and I'm really fierce these days. And as I'm doing my fierce thing and the adrenaline's pumping and I'm just getting into my I'm going to manifest my you know, other form. Okay. The cosmic humor of the predicament starts to sneak in. Okay. Got you again. Okay. Because you only get angry when somebody gets to what in you? They get to a model you've got going about how you think it ought to be. And since your game of awakening is to ferret out those places in you where you're clinging to models of this or that, what can, more can you ask for than that somebody would come along to wake you up again? Okay. And if they can get you furious, isn't that nice of them? Isn't that a compassionate act? Not necessarily conscious compassion on their part, but in terms of your relation to your guru who sent the person, who is the person, what a compassionate act to really get me bugged. Thank you. See? See? Now, how long does it take you in that sequence of little mind trips, mind moments, before you go from the which is individual differences level, to here I am in an incarnation going see? to reestablishing the place in you where far out, look at the and what's fun is when you're playing with other beings called satsang or sangha who are equally conscious and working on themselves, and you go, and the other person goes, and you're both looking at each other saying, far out, look at this one. <laughs> and that's why it gets very heady to hang around satsang, because there is an assumption that everybody's on the trip together, and we're really helping each other wake up, and we get caught in these incredible melodramas but there is, behind it all, there is the cosmic joke. And that's why having this other connection, whether to the guru or to the mantra or whatever it is that you have a connection, it's that third thing that keeps you from getting lost in the two all the time. So it's like when you're making love, keep the guru in the room. So there's always a third consciousness, just a pure, non-judgmental, totally compassionate, totally loving consciousness present, always, every way you are, everything you're doing. You just keep running your life off against that until pretty soon you've just incorporated that whole philosophy, that whole spacious, present, calm, ah, in which ongoing is pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and so on. Within the romantic image is the word loneliness. 
And a lot of people feel very lonely when they get into certain psychodynamic, psychological spaces where they don't make contact with others. You will find in the spiritual journey that you come into intense experiences of aloneness. But if you examine them carefully, you will find out that they are very different from loneliness. And that it ends up that we are all alone. We are all alone. And there begins very early in the game to be the flickering recognition of that all aloneness. We are not alone, my friend, not because there are so many others, but because there are none. It's another kind of aloneness, not loneliness. But again, when we get these certain experiences, we put our old habits of thinking, lay them on them, in order to interpret them in a certain way. I was reading about anger. I just wanted to read you this letter I got from a lovely gal in New York. Here in New York, working on not getting in the way of music, working at being one with it, the whole population is a gigantic, intricate, triumphant, funny, sad work in progress. Downtown on the east side, I saw an angry woman shaking her fist at a truck driver who had cut her off. She was sputtering with rage, trying to find words. Finally, she shouted, you, you, you weird expression of God, you. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.